If you look hard enough, can you see yourself in about five years? Maybe 10? You know, not a long time, not a long time in the future, the future you, but if you just look hard enough, can you see where you're at in five years, in 10 years? You've got an idea. Surely you've got a plan. Are you retired yet? Some of you are like, I'm going to be so close. Five years, 10 years. Where are you at with your family? Maybe you're a, a teenager or a college student and you're thinking, maybe will you be married then? Will you have kids then? Or maybe you've got kids and you're thinking, oh, they'll, they'll be out of the house by then. Or they'll at least be out of diapers by then. Things will be so much better. Where are you at in your career? Will you be VP of the company by then? Will you be the head salesman or saleswoman by then? Will you be on the board by then? Will you have a new career by then? Will you be in college getting prepared? Will you be in grad school getting ready? Will you be a fellow by then? Will you have tenure by then? Have you got an idea just like five years, 10 years from now of where you see yourself in life? You know what I'm talking about when you'll finally be in the right place, right? You're working toward it right now. Maybe right now there's something kind of in between you and the right place. You've got a few years of education that you're working on. Some of you are in school right now. You've gone back to school. Or maybe there's some training. Or maybe you're biding your time. And you're, you've got a season serving. You're working your way up the ladder. But you know it's for a purpose. It's because in five years or ten years, all that hard work, all that groundwork, all the foundation that you're building right now is going to get you into the right place. Won't that be a great day? Won't that be a, can you feel it? Won't it, be, won't it be a great day to be in the right place? And hopefully, hopefully that this right place has something to do with where God wants you. Hopefully, this right place has something to do with your relationship with God because, I mean, we can all be in a better right place in our relationship with God. And maybe even if you're not a person of faith, but you came this morning because a friend has invited you to church or, or you're watching online, and, and we're just so honored. But even if you're not a person of faith, you're watching or you came because you're curious about this. I mean, you know, you didn't like, it didn't surprise you that like, oh, I didn't know this was a church, right? I mean, like you came to church because you're curious that God might have a better plan for your life. That there might be something different in your future that can get you into a better right place because we can all feel like we could be in a different place and a better right place with God. Well, through this series, we've been talking about uh, learning how to lead, how to go on this journey in finding kind of our right place in life by looking at a man named David who is a shepherd boy who became king of Israel. And through that process, as he came to lead an entire nation and God's people, the person that he had the most trouble leading is the same person that you and I have the most trouble leading, himself. We all see a better, different version of ourselves in the future. Where we are is not where we're always going to be, but here's the struggle. Here's the struggle. Um, does it matter the right place? Does it matter how you get there? 
I mean, listen, if you're going to be VP of the company and you're going to be such a better VP than the current VP, right? Does it matter how you get there? Does it matter how you get to the right place? When it comes to getting to even the place God wants you, I'm not even talking about in your career. I'm not even talking about anything else in success. I'm talking about the place that God wants you, and it might have to do with your career. It might have to do with your, your family. Does it matter how you get there? That's the question that David had to ask. Well, hey, my name is Carter McKinnis. I'm lead pastor here at Mountaintop. I'm so honored that you're here. If you came for the very first time, thank you so much. Man, on a beautiful day in Birmingham, you could have been doing a million other things. So uh, you honor us by being here. And those of you that, that I get to see every Sunday, it's, it's great to see you and great to see those of you online. So God had a right place for David. You see, God had anointed him to be king David, at f about 15 years old, we think. But it was going to take a minute for David to get there. Because David actually started out as youngest son David. A far cry from King David, which was the right place. And then he spent some time as shepherd David, caring for his father's flocks and looking out. He was the youngest of eight brothers, and that's kind of the job that fell to him. But he finally got a job in the king's palace, but it wasn't like vice chancellor or anything like that. No, it wasn't that exciting. The job he got was musician David. And he became a musician for King Saul, and he would play the harp to make Saul feel better. But when a nine-foot, nine-inch giant of Israel's greatest enemy, the Philistines, stood in a valley and threatened the entire Israeli army. And Saul and all his troops cowered in fear. It was David who stepped up. And in one of the most famous stories in the Bible that we talked about last week, if you want to go back and kind of catch up, and slayed the mighty giant Goliath. And when word of his exploits got back to Jerusalem, Everything changed, and he became hero David. He became such a hero, and Saul was so impressed, Saul appointed him as general over his entire army. And David became the most feared and mightiest warrior on planet Earth. And I don't, I don't say this with hyperbole, he dominated in battle. He dominated. He was the fiercest warrior in the known world. And when Saul and his general David and the armies of Israel came back from just ransacking and dominating the Philistines and anybody else in their way, when they came back to Jerusalem, the women of town gathered together with tambourines, right? There is a charismatic church. They had tambourines, and they were dancing, very charismatic. They were dancing and they were singing. And these are the lyrics to the song that they were singing. Saul has slain his thousands. I, was, I tried to think all week for like a tune to that, like what it was like. I don't know. All I could come up with like nursery rhyme tunes. Saul has slain his thousands. That's not bad. They're praising Saul. Listen to this next line. David, his tens of thousands. Oh, you see how this is going to go, right? Saul might be their king, but David has become their leader.
And then it says, Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me only thousands. I think it went something like that. What more can he get but the kingdom? In other words, he already has the applause of the people. He already has the hearts of the people. What more can he get but the actual kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Because you keep your friends close and your enemies closer, right? You keep your enemies closer and Saul brought him in and kept it close and then he just loses it. First Samuel describes it as an evil spirit that comes over Saul. Um, he gets maniacal. He even, I mean, check this out. This is how maniacal he gets. He gives David one of his own daughters in marriage in hopes that their marriage will be a distraction for David so he will get killed in battle. I mean, that's how toxic and that's how crazy and maniacal that he gets. And then this happens. The next day, he was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre, so it's like a stringed instrument, kind of like a guitar, as he usually did. So Saul is prophesying. Saul had a spear in his hand because who doesn't care around a spear when they're prophesying, right? And he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. And I'm not talking like by the coattails. He's trying to pin him through the heart or through the head or through whatever body part he could hit. But David eluded him how many times? Twice. So he threw it at him at least twice. And this sets off a chain of events. This isn't the last time that Saul tries to kill David. He tries to kill him another time. So it's a total of three times that he's tried to kill David in this crazy series of events. Saul does every, makes every effort to make David's life miserable because jealousy will make you do crazy things, won't it? Jealousy will make you do crazy things. You see, the problem here, the problem here, is that Saul sees what he believes for himself as the right place. Saul believes that he's in the right place as king of Israel. And I know this much about kings. They don't give up their kingship too easily. Right? He believes for him, he believes that, that for him is the right place. But David has had God, through the prophet Samuel, anoint him as king of Israel. David believes that for him, the right place. So there's a problem. There's only one right place, and there's King Saul and King David, but there can't be king both. There's Saul who holds the office of king, and he has been anointed by God, but God's favor has been pulled from him, even though he holds the position. And then there is David who has become a hero of Israel, who has been anointed by God to be the future king of Israel, and it is his rightful place under the authority of Almighty God. There are two guys, Saul and David, that see themselves as King Saul and King David. Saul thought that he was in the right place, that he had a rightful spot as the throne, so he tried to kill David. David, but David knew, David knew that his place was on the throne. 
So what's David going to do? He is the mightiest and fiercest warrior in the known world. If he can slay a nine-foot, nine-inch giant, he can kill Saul with one hand tied behind his back. But he has to ask himself, he has to struggle with this question. Is that the right thing to do? I mean, I, I know that the right place for me is to be king over Israel, but is that the right thing to do? Is the right thing to do to take the position no matter the means? Is that the right thing to do? You ever been in one of those spots before that you knew the right place to do? You knew what God wanted you to do? You knew where you were supposed to be in your career? You knew what was, where you were supposed to be in the community? You knew that this was the place for you, but you were going to have to do something to get there that maybe went against your morals, maybe went against your values, maybe went against your standards, and you had to ask yourself, is that the right thing to do. You see, here was, here was the problem. They both thought that they were the right king for Israel. Saul thought he was the right king. David thought he was the right king. But David's difference was that David wanted to be the right kind of king. And friends, there's a big difference between the two. So David leaves. He just leaves. He doesn't want to fight about it. He doesn't want to argue about it. He doesn't want to battle over it. He doesn't want to dodge spears for the rest of his life. He just leaves and decides he'll wait it out. When God removes Saul from being king, then it'll be his time. But he's not going to take it from him. And about 600 of the men in his army follow David out into the wilderness to wait. They don't know how long. Will it be weeks? Will it be months? Maybe years? They don't know. But Saul's bloodlust for David can't be quenched. He wants to kill him and kill him once and for all. So we're going to pick up this story that uh, is in 1 Samuel 24. And uh, it's interesting. This is the last story, this series. We've had three uh, that are pre-king and three post-king. So this is the final one that was the story kind of before David becomes king. So if you got your Bibles, maybe you're at home watching, maybe you're on your back porch or you're here, you got your notebooks or whatever it is, you want to open up to 1 Samuel 24. If you don't have a Bible, pick one up at the bookshelves when you leave. Now listen, there are a million reasons that I believe this book is true, but this story is one of them because there is no way that you would make up this story. I, this, listen, this story, there is no way if you were making it up, you were mis making up the story, there was no way you would make up this story. It's such a phenomenal story. So Saul takes 3,000 men out to hunt for David and his 600 men. He hears that David and his men might be camped out in an area called En Gedi. So they're searching all around, they're looking all around the desert and the, the mountains, and it's kind of rough terrain. And, uh, well, let's just say that Saul comes to a point where he sort of, uh, how shall I put it, he needs to take a break. All right? So in 1 Samuel 24, we're picking it up in verse 
three. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there. This is Saul. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Um, let me see how I can put this in the nicest way. Um, this is number two. Not one, two. Not one, two. Okay? I mean, if you want to get into the Hebrew word, I can. But, I mean, it's just, I figure you can get it, right? He's going to do number two. And as luck would have it, Saul's got like the worst luck. The cave he picked to go number two, David and his 600 men are there. David and his men were far back in the cave. So, okay, let me see if I can set the scene here to you um, as clearly and as less graphically as I can. He goes in. He has no idea that the men, David and the men, are in the back. They're dark. They're hiding in the back of the cave. So he goes in and turns around with his kind of back to the back, and he's looking out to the light where he gets out of, you know, you know eye shot of his men and squats down to take care of business, okay? He has no idea there's an army behind him. Listen, about 13 years ago, Emily and I got the chance to go to Israel. I cannot possibly tell you how many caves are in Israel if you've never been there. The entire country is rocks and mountains. There's all a bunch of little crannies, a bunch of little inlets. The odds are astronomical that he picks this cave. So this, have you set the scene? What's going on here? I told you, there's no way you'd make this up. Like it had to happen, right? Then the men says, so this is David's men. They're like whispering. This is the day the Lord spoke of you when he said, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. This is the day. David's men tell him, this is the chance, and this is in that world, this is the expected behavior. He's unattended by bodyguards. He's unable to protect himself. He is in the most vulnerable position you can possibly be in. And this is a sign, David. We are at war, and God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Do you, David, do you remember he tried to kill you three times? Listen, listen. The right place is for you to be king, and this is your chance to take it. This is your chance to take matters into your own hands. This is your chance to be king. You're a warrior, David. You're a warrior king. Act like it. It's so easy in this spot, isn't it? You ever been in that spot? When you feel like God has called you to a right place, but God has taken a little too long for you to get there? When you just want to do it your way and you want to take a shortcut and you hear a lot of voices, everyone says, you, you know, everyone just says to do it. In fact, so you start having family members and friends start telling you. We say this in the world all the time. Sometimes you just got to do what's best for you. Listen, David, sometimes you just need to do what's best for you, David. Sometimes you just got to do what's best for you. This is why we keep seeing companies cook the books to look better for investors. This is why we keep seeing athletes take PEDs to get to the top. This is why we keep seeing pastors shun faithfulness for fame. The right place is all that matters. Whatever purpose God has for you, you're going to have people that tell you to take a shortcut. You're going to have opportunities to get ahead at someone else's expense, and you're going to 
face the temptation to fast track God's plan for your life to get to the right place. And again, David has to ask himself, is that the right thing to do? I could kill him just like that. And I'm king. Just like God told me I would be. But is that the right thing to do? And David's not so sure. So, the next verse says, David crept up unnoticed. He goes, tiptoes behind Saul. Very softly. He crept up. Maybe he knelt down. What's he going to do? It doesn't smell so good where he's at. And I wonder what happened at that moment when he crept up behind him I, with a sword in his hand. And I wonder if he looked at that sword. Because you remember, David doesn't have a sword. He took one from a giant named Goliath. A battle that he didn't fight. A battle that the Lord fought. I wonder if he just looked at that sword and something, something moved in him. And instead of piercing him through the heart, it says he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Just a, just a little corner, right? And we don't know exactly what this means, but the next few verses, I think, tell us a story about something that was happening deep in his heart at that moment. He came close. It says, afterward, David was conscious stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master. He calls Saul, the guy, the maniac who tried to kill him three times, his master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is anointed of the Lord. He is still king. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way, clueless to what had just transpired. I love that word there, conscience. Said he was conscience-stricken. He was conscience-stricken. I've heard it described that uh, your conscience is that thing that makes you tell your mom before your sister does or your little brother, like that thing in you. If you got the old King James Version, I love it. It's, you know, sometimes that old ancient language, it says his heart smote him. The Hebrew word there that's used means to... Uh, it means to beat or to kill. I don't think his heart killed him. What it means is that thing that you and I have felt time and time again, like his insides were killing him, right? That's your conscience. Your insides are killing you when you're about to do something wrong. That little piece of cloth, you got that cloth with you? 
That little piece of cloth was a reminder of what he almost did, who he almost became, how he almost became the right, the wrong person just to try to get to the right place. David chose not to kill Saul, but it bothered, just looking at that piece of cloth, it bothers him that he even thought about it. It bothers him that his men thought about it and they would consider it. This is the wrong way to get to the right place. Because here's what I think, here's what our conscience thing is. We usually know the difference between the wrong thing and the right thing. You usually know, don't you? You usually know the difference between the wrong thing and the right thing. The Bible says that God's laws are written on our heart. That's, that's what I believe is the conscience, is the gift of the Holy Spirit in us. It is God's presence just, just heavy on us. This is why when teenagers say like, you know, how far is too far or can I go this far? And I always say like, if you had to have to, question, have to ask the question, you probably already know it's too far. This is why that thing inside of you begins to kind of just turn your stomach and your heart when you think, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have taken that. Because you already know the difference between the wrong thing and the right thing. And David doesn't want to do the wrong thing. The end doesn't justify the, need, the means. Saul was anointed by God too, and he's still king, and this is not honorable. And if it's not honor worthy, it's not worth it. Honor always wins, David says, and always feels better. So let me ask you something. You just take that little piece of cloth. Just hold it in your hands there. Is there something in which you're dangerously close to doing the wrong thing? Where you're cutting corners in business, cutting corners in your marriage, Cutting corners with your children, cutting corners in a dating relationship, and you're dangerously close to becoming the wrong person en route to what you think is the right place. And you know the difference between what's right and what's wrong. So Saul leaves the cave, and shortly after, David comes out. I guess when he's shouting distance, kind of yells across the field. He says, David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, my Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. I mean, think about this is the humility of this. I could have just killed you and I'm bowing down to you. You've tried to kill me three times and I'm bowing down to you. And he said to Saul, why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you. You're basically, you're hunting me down because ever, you, got peop, you got voices in your head, in every ear telling you, David's going to hurt you, David's going to. This is day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands. And of course, Saul's thinking, what is he talking about, right? Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. And you can see he probably holds up like the little piece of cloth. And Saul's like, let me check my robe. Well, son of a gun. Now, when did that happen? Oh. Oh. And I said, I will not lay a hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off your corner from your robe but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take 
my life. He says, there's no evil in me. You're chasing me. I don't want to kill you. I don't want to do the wrong thing to get to the right place. And then David turns his attention back where it should be that the Lord alone can put him where he wants him. And David says, the Lord judge between you and me and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done for me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds. And doggone it, I almost did it. So my hand will not touch you. May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. And all of a sudden, the David that stood face to face with the Goliath comes back again. And he remembers who he is. And this is why God called him a man after his own heart. That God will put me where he wants me, when he wants me. And I will wait on the Lord. But the battle is not mine. The battle belongs to the Lord. Dad, gummit, Saul, I almost called a little you're crazy. Like you can get caught of it. I almost caught a little of your crazy and your toxicity almost made me do something that I don't want to do and it almost made me become someone I don't want to become. But I don't want to do that. That's not who I'm not going to let you bring me down because David knew this. The right place by the wrong means is the wrong place. The right place by the wrong means is the wrong place. See, we will stand before God for everything we do one day. The Bible calls it we will give an account to God. And I don't believe God will be as concerned about the mountains we climb or all that we accomplished, but who we became in the process. Did we remember who we were and whose we were? You want to climb the mountain? You want to climb to a place in your career? Look at me. It's great. great. It's not worth your marriage. It's not worth your children. You want to reach a certain status in the company or in the community? That's great. Nothing wrong with that. It's not worth your convictions. It's not worth your values. You want to impress the right people to make it to the top? It's not worth your integrity. It's not worth your relationship with God. David had every right to be king. God had chosen him. He had defeated Israel's greatest enemy, and the current king was a sociopath. The throne was the right place for David, but David knows the right place by the wrong means is the wrong place. And you might kill me, Saul, <laughs> And I might never make it there. See, that's the thing David had to be okay with. You might get me before I get there. But there are worse things than being dead. There's being alive and having a dead soul and an empty heart. Jesus said it this way. And you're going to hear me repeat this verse a few times in this series because it lines so much up with David's life. Jesus said it this way, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? 
What good will it be if you become VP and forfeit your integrity? What good will it be if you make a million dollars and forfeit your family? What good will it be if you make it to the top and it costs you your marriage? What good will it be if you have all the successes in the world and no values? What good will it be? Hollywood has the prettiest people and the ugliest families. What good will it be if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? Because here's the interesting thing. I believe if you take the high road, if you take the road of character and integrity that even those that took the low road sometimes notice. And Saul certainly did. Listen to how the story closes out. Saul says to David, you are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well. And I have treated you badly. You have just told me about the good you did for me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him go away unharmed? In other words, Saul saying, um, if I'd have been in your shoes, you'd have a spear through you. May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. And this is the <laughs> kind of the moment. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established into your hands. Because David, even though I want to be the right king for Israel, I think you're the right kind of king for Israel. Because the right place, by the wrong means, is the wrong place. So, five years from now, 10 years from now, where are you at? What are you doing? Man, I hope you've crushed it. <laughs> I do. I hope you crush it in, your, in, in all your endeavors and all that you want to accomplish. I hope you're doing the thing that God created you to do. But I promise you this. I promise you this. It won't matter as much where you land as much as it will matter who you become in the process because you can gain the whole world and it's not worth your integrity it's not worth your character it's not worth your family it's not worth your marriage it's not worth your relationships it's not worth your values it's not worth your standards you see David learned a valuable lesson on his way to lead Israel. That leadership isn't always about just getting the title of leader. It's about being the kind of leader who people actually want to follow. You get this little piece of cloth, and, and I just believe that it represents for you just that place where you're cutting some corners maybe, or maybe you're just like David, and you haven't done anything wrong, but you're dangerously close. You could see how you could do it. You know, if you just, you know, cut a few corners with the, the books, if you just cut a few corners in a relationship, if you just cut a few corners, you know, if you just tell a couple of white lies, it'll make a little bit more money, it'll get you a little bit more, whatever it is, 
Maybe it's cutting corners in a dating relationship, cutting corners in a marriage, cutting corners with children, but there's something where you're close and you're like, that's not who I want to be. And we're going to close with a song that's got some powerful lyrics. It says, I'm done chasing feelings. Spirit, lead me. I want to obey. I am done chasing feelings. And your feelings will create all kinds of voices that tell you to do this or do that to find your way to the top. But I want our prayer. I want my prayer to be, Spirit, lead me. I want to be the kind of person before I even think about getting to the right place. So during this song, you're invited to come. Just lay this down and pray here up front. I encourage you to give everybody some space where you're at. Maybe if you're watching at home, maybe you just want to kneel down right by your couch or on your back porch and just, and just with your hands open and just hand to God whatever you need to hand him. Heavenly Father, it's so easy for us to get close to doing something we don't want to do and become something, someone we don't want to become. So, Lord, we pray to you today. We just say we're done chasing feelings. If you say no, we'll stop. If we say yes, we'll take the next step. But we're done chasing our feelings. We want to obey you. And we lay this at our feet. Lord, I pray that every person in this room would know if they've already crossed some boundaries, if they've already uh, given up some integrity or character, Lord, that the good news that we find in your son Jesus is that we can be forgiven. And today is the day that we can start being the person that you created us to be and not that we have made ourselves to be. So, Lord, we give it to you today. We lay it on the altar before you. In Jesus' name, amen. You're invited to stand and come as we sing.